Welcome to the G3 Podcast. I am Virgil Walker. I'm joined by Scott Annual and Josh Bice. We have joining us Phil Johnson, all the way from California. Glad to have you with us, Phil. Thank you. Um, Phil is the Executive Director of Grace to You, the teaching ministry of Dr. John MacArthur. And we're excited to engage in this conversation uh, that we're about to have. You're in for a treat. Uh, this is an important conversation to have. It's an important discussion to have. On September 21st through the 23rd, uh, we've got the 2023 G3 National Conference. Uh, this conference is on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Uh, it's it's one, again, you won't want to miss. You'll want to mark your calendars. You'll want to plan. If you've got vacation, this will be the place that you want to be. We'll have all of our our, our great speakers who, who all, are all, always with us at G3 that'll be a part of that. Uh, it's a, a great family reunion time. Uh, definitely be in the place. Join us there September 21st through the 23rd. Go to G3 Men dot org uh, and and register there. We'll talk more about that at the end uh, of our time together. But I, I want to jump into this conversation. Uh, it's a conversation uh, about the issue of cessationism. Uh, Josh, I know that this is something you've thought a lot about. I know all of us in our in our prospective areas have thought quite a bit about this. Uh, so I can't wait to unpack this. Why don't you lead us off and let us know what we're going to be yeah, talking I mean, about? Yeah, I mean, when we thought about having Phil Johnson here with us in studio for a podcast, we we wanted to pick something that was not controversial at all. <laughs> right, right. So we, nothing that would get him that. in trouble. Nothing yeah. that would get him in trouble. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah, cessationism. I I think it's a really important subject. I mm -hmm. think it's an important doctrine. I think it has various different implications. Uh, the way it plays out, or really the the opposing view, the continuationist position in the life of the church has massive implications, which I think will you know we're, we're going to talk about today. Mm. But we want to talk about cessationism just in terms of a definition from the beginning. And so really cessationism is a position that says or states that the, the miraculous gifts that are typically associated with the apostles, so otherwise known as the apostolic gifts, have ceased. And so oftentimes I think, you know, it's misunderstood because people hear us say something like, well, I'm a cessationist, and they immediately say, well, then you just don't believe in miracles. Right. You don't believe right. that God still performs miracles. Right. And that's certainly not what the position of cessationism believes. Really, that there's a body of, of gifts that were associated directly with the apostles, that when the apostles, that gift in and of itself was was no longer given to the local church, then the gifts associated with that gift, the gift of or the office of an apostle, have also ceased mm -hmm. to be given to the church. And so when we think about Ephesians 4, when it talks about the fact that the apostle is a gift to the church, and then obviously you can, you know, think about how was an apostle, you know, identified. Mm -hmm. And you can see that an apostle, the office of an apostle was specifically chosen by Christ. The apostle was commissioned by Christ for the purpose of going out and preaching the gospel. And then obviously, the, you know, all of the apostles were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then they also possessed these miraculous gifts, the, the, the apostolic gifts. And when the apostle or the apostles died... Obviously, they were very much a part of the completion of the New Testament canon, the canon of Scripture being closed. And so now what we have is we have these individuals in church history, really in many ways in modern church history, that has 
really started to claim that these gifts are normative today mm-hmm. and operative mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. I want to just quote to you what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, But since the canon of Scripture has been completed and the Christian church fully founded and established, these extraordinary gifts have ceased. So now as we think about the opposing position, the continuationist position, what does this mean for the for the church at large? What does it mean for the local church? And so, Phil, let's let's really begin with you. As we think about the continuationist position, what does this mean in terms of the sufficiency of Scripture? Yeah, in fact, I, I would say the major doctrine that um, the charismatic doctrines undermine is the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm-hmm. It's basically the idea is that God isn't really uh, saying everything to us that he needs to say or right. wants to say. He's not supplied us with everything we need apart if we don't have these if we don't have these miraculous gifts right and that's actually a denial it's a de facto denial of the doctrine of biblical sufficiency right. if scripture isn't sufficient then we do need these other gifts uh, and if scripture is sufficient then we have to ask what is the purpose of the other gifts right. scripture is pretty clear paul calls those gifts the signs of an apostle right uh, and so it seems to me that if you say, no, these gifts must be normative through the life of the church, then what you're also saying is, in effect, although I think there are many charismatics who would deny this, and yet there's also a movement that's it's come up to try to resurrect the office of apostle yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, put people in charge with the same kinds of authority that the, mm. the original apostles had. And so that's a that's a significant danger, and it's opened the door to all sorts of uh, false doctrines and mm-hmm. um, spiritual abuses and and just fakery because people feel like if I if I'm not manifesting these gifts, then I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit, yeah. and in their desperation to do it, they'll they'll actually concoct phony miracles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why. Yeah. So much of the phenomena you see associated with the charismatic movement is either uh, unprovable or questionable. It's based on claims people make, but it isn't the sort of testable, observable miracles that we see actually unfolding on the pages of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's that, that's right on point. You mentioned something, and, and, and in fact, I did as well. When we when we talk about this subject, we oftentimes reference the miraculous gifts. But really, in many ways, as we think about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and in the life of the church today, and the Holy Spirit is certainly operative in the life of the church today, is that all gifts are miraculous because they're, they're gifts from God in the sense of, you know, it's not something that we work up in the flesh. Right. I would say they're supernatural. Uh, I think it it's good to define the word miracle maybe a little bit more precisely right to me a, a, a miracle is something that contravenes the the rules of nature the right. ordinary course right. of nature do i believe god heals yes and i believe sometimes god heals miraculously but usually he heals through normal means right. and so it's right to pray for healing by any means mm-hmm. Uh, including by miracles. Mm-hmm. But what we don't see today is anyone who has the gift of healing, the ability just right. uh, like like Peter and Paul described in the New Testament, who pretty much healed uh, for a time at least during the apostolic era. They were able to heal you know, pretty much anything. Right. Jesus healed anyone and everyone. That's what the gift of healing would look like. 
Uh, but what we actually see today are people uh, who are only able to heal uh, invisible sicknesses, you know. Right, um, yeah. Nobody's healing people who were born blind or lame from birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, you can't claim reasonably that everything that was happening in the New Testament is still happening in the church today because clearly it's not. We're not seeing those kinds of miracles and I don't think that's because there's any deficiency in the church. I think it's pretty clear that even by the end of the the New Testament canon, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Paul leaves Trophimus sick, mm-hmm. uh, and he tells Timothy to uh, to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. Mm-hmm. In other words, medicate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, why didn't he just heal him? Why didn't he send him a prayer cloth to to heal him? (laughs) Because it's clear that by the end of the New Testament, those gifts were not operative in the same way they were in the early chapters of Acts. Yeah. Well, and as you said, it it all comes down to purpose. These were signs of the apostles. They had a purpose of confirming their authority derived from Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they weren't for their own sake, right? It, was, it wasn't just someone's sick, so they're, they're healed for its own sake. It was they were healed as a, as a confirmatory sign, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so when we look at Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, what we're seeing is, you know, he's describing the gifts that are, you know, given to the local church. He, he talks about love, and then he also talks about, really in many ways, a scathing rebuke for yeah. the abuse yeah. of the way the church was operating and functioning in terms of the spiritual gifts. But what we see in that in that passage, specifically chapter 14, is we see an ongoing statement that the gifts were given for the purpose of building up the church, right. edification of the church, not for the edification of oneself. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as we think about the abuse that was historic in, in Paul's day in the church at Corinth, and then we look at our own present day context, really we see a couple of primary you know abuses. Yeah. Specifically speaking on the issue of the gift of tongues and prophecy. So let's talk about tongues first. Phil, as we think about the charismatic movement and the gift of tongues, perhaps being the most prevalent. Talk to us a little bit about why it is that the modern-day movement of tongues is not the same as the biblical gift. Right. Well, you can go all the way back to Pentecost. Mm. And, in fact, early charismatic doctrine was known as Pentecostalism Mm -hmm. because the claim that was being made was that what you see happening at Pentecost in Acts 2 is what's happening today, people speaking in tongues. But the problem is that isn't what we're seeing today because in Acts chapter 2, the people who, who were there and not speaking in tongues were hearing the gospel in their own language. So those tongues were translatable, recognizable languages. If you could have had a tape recorder and recorded that, uh, a native speaker would have been yeah. able to translate yeah, it for you, right. tell you exactly what it is. They were speaking in languages that apparently they hadn't learned Um and, and it conveyed a message, which was the whole point. The idea was to, to give the idea to everyone who was there assembled that the gospel now is going out even to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. It isn't just confined to the Hebrew language or, or the Jewish culture, but it was going out to everyone in their own languages. Yeah. And God accomplished that through this miracle of mm-hmm. tongues. And, and the gift of tongues persisted for a short time in the church, but 
First Corinthians, which is one of the earliest epistles, is the only one that actually mentions it. Mm-hmm. Right. There are no instructions in any of Paul's pastoral writings for uh, how to how to you know use the charismatic gifts or any of that. So again, there's evidence that those gifts faded before the New Testament canon was even completed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you get into 1 Corinthians and Paul's dealing with tongues, the one thing that he wants to convey is that the whole point of this is to edify the church, like you said. And therefore, he said, if someone speaks in tongues, somebody has to translate it. Right. It has to be translated. And that simply isn't done today. If it's if it's done, uh, you know, at all, it's done, I, I think, in a pretend way. Right. Someone speaks nonsense uh, syllables, and then someone pretends to translate what that means. And if you have, I've been in churches where there will be two translators, and they they translate it in ways that conflict. Yeah. They don't even agree on what the translation is, and nobody could ever test it because it isn't a legitimate language. It's just nonsense mm-hmm. syllables, and we see that again and again and again. And yet, the pressure is on people in the church uh, to to pretend that. This is all real and miraculous yeah. when, in fact, it's a learned behavior that pretty much anybody could do. What happens often in those kinds of settings, Phil, is the tongues of a certain group sound exactly alike, right? right. And they begin to mimic each other in the ba-ba-ba, da-da-da, pa-pa-pa, you know, kind of rhythmic uh, right. pr- progression of all of that. And, and it's, it's, not, it's not realistic. Uh, no one speaks that way normally there, there you know there's def- definitely patterns and rhythmic patterns of of how we normally speak but it's not the same sound the same syllable in in, con- in constant repetition right uh and so you've got the the, the other thing is the pressure that's in those that, that that are in those environments to to function in that way i know i th- th- that was my background right i mean you, you and i both are from from tulsa that's right uh, homeboys yeah right from tulsa and, and went to the same high school right that's right uh, uh as well not at the same time but no, yeah. no, you're much younger than yeah, I well, am. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. Yeah, but um, at, at the same time, we were we were located in in the mecca of 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 really charismatic chaos. That's right. I grew up in that, and my best friend for through junior high and high school was the son of a well known charismatic faith healer, mm-hmm. uh, Assemblies of God evangelist, mm-hmm. who ministered in third world countries mostly, but he would draw stadium sized yep. uh, crowds. And pretend to heal them and see them speak in tongues and, and all of that. And um, he actually died a, a lingering death from a rare kind of bone cancer that mm-hmm. was painful. And it caused his son, who was my best friend, to abandon the faith yeah. because he realized his father, who had claimed to heal so many people, yeah. was dying of an incurable disease yeah. and there was nothing he could do about it. And so he, he not only abandoned the charismatic ideas that his father had ingrained him he abandoned the faith yeah that uh, often that often happens mm. and the issue is that you don't have enough faith for and, and for me it was the issue of tongues you know I, they, they prayed for me forever i couldn't mm-hmm. mimic this this behavior and then finally i'm in a church and there's this ecstatic expression of of, of music uh, that, that's rhythmic and and then over the time i'm i'm hearing what people are saying and so i'm thinking oh if that's tongues 
then I'll say that and that'll be identified as what what tongues is. And so when, when I did that behavior, everyone, you know, patted me and glad handed me. And now I'm a part of the, the, the group and, and I'm more spiritual now than others. And the more often I demonstrate this gift, the more spiritual uh, I am. And so that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the environment. That, that we're from. And so again, with, with that background of, of, of Kenneth Hagen and uh, Copeland coming out of that, that was, that was the, the those are the circles that, the, yeah. that I ran in. Right. And that, that's exactly what they, what they promoted and, and, and pushed. Uh, in addition to issues of tongues, you had the extremes of that uh, were the, were the, uh, the, the, the laughter and the Holy ghost and the, you know, all of that kind of chaos as well. That was, that was a part of an extension of what was happening with, with tongues. Right. And, and all of those things have in common that they are empty emotionalism. You know, back to back to Josh's original question about the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is so valuable because it 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 not only is the infallible Word of God; it, it conveys an important message. It, it can, everything it conveys is truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the problem with tongues uh, and uh, most of the other charismatic manifestations is that w- what it's doing is stirring raw emotion without any connection to any truth. Right. And so the tongues, the nonsense syllables, uh, they, 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 they might stir your feelings. They might get people to congratulate you, but they're not really edifying anyone. Yeah. And that's the very thing Paul condemns in first Corinthians 14. Right. Mm-hmm. So Phil, let me, what, what about, what would you say to the more thoughtful continuationists who maybe even do acknowledge in Acts 2, tongues was a known language? I mean, if, if you know any Greek, you can't get away from that right. because the word glosses tongue and the word dialecto language is used interchangeably. But there are some more thoughtful continuationists who acknowledge that, but say that tongues in, Corinth, in Corinthians is different. It's language of angels, private prayer language, that kind of thing. Yeah. What do you say to that? Well, when Paul mentions the language of angels, it's only as a hypothetical. Right. It's mm-hmm. hyperbole. So he's not telling people you, you should speak in an angelic language that has no relationship to earthly language. In, in fact, that would contradict what he's saying about let someone translate. Yeah. yeah. Make, it, make a translation. So um, I think there's a lot of twisting going on there. I, I'm, I'm troubled by, I mean, I have many friends who are thoughtful continuationists, as you say. They're not even charismatics. They would say, I'm not a charismatic, mm. but I'm a continuationist. I don't believe those gifts have ceased because I don't see any proof text in Scripture. Right. There's no text you can point to that says these gifts will cease at such and such a time. And there is a verse that seems to say that in 1 Corinthians 13, but, but I, I would agree with them that it's, you have to take it out of context right. to try to use that as a proof text for continuationism. But my answer to that is, if you applied that to everything we believe, why do you think the gift of why do you think the office of apostle has ceased? Right. Why do you think the canon is closed? Mm-hmm. Because there's no proof text to prove those either. Yeah, it's simply the case that the office ceased. And Scripture was complete, and nobody's writing new Scripture today. There are people who claim, claim to, sure. to do it, but <laughs> it's not a credible claim. And and no sensible, thoughtful continuationist even would say, yeah, we need to examine that to see if maybe that should be added to the canon mm-hmm. of Scripture. They believe the canon is closed. Right. They believe the gift of apostle is done away with. So why don't we use the same rationale with those miraculous gifts, which clearly did cease? And every serious theologian from the apostolic era until the 
beginning of the 20, 20th century mm-hmm. uh, agreed that those gifts had ceased. Yeah. We don't see them on a widespread scale in the church. Uh, and I think we just need to be honest about that. Yeah. What's then done with the with the gift of, of prophecy is it's 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 minimized, right? It there there are categories of prophecy that 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 aren't as substantial as yeah. as scripture. I would say that's probably the worst and most dangerous twist uh, that's occurred in evangelical conservative evangelical theological circles over the past fifty years. Mm-hmm. This notion that there's there's something about New Testament prophecy that sets it apart from Old Testament prophecy where in Deuteronomy 18, for example, God clearly says, if a prophet gets it wrong, you don't believe that guy. He's not a true prophet. And in fact, there was a death penalty for somebody who prophesied falsely. But they say in the New Testament, it's okay to get your prophecies wrong. Mm -hmm. And in reality, charismatic prophecies are wrong far more than they are right. (laughs) They're not even as reliable as the the horoscope in the newspaper because the horoscope in the newspaper is at least generalized enough that you can well, make pretty, I've heard some pretty generalized prophecies. Yeah, there, well. there's that too. There is that too. But there's never been a single prophet who could who could consistently prophesy accurately. Right. And in fact, the best prophets, uh, if you could use that word, the the people, the charismatics. Uh, would point to as their best prophets. Mm. They get the majority of their prophecies wrong. So right, yeah. so how is that not dangerous? If a guy is claiming to speak for God right. and most of what he says is false, right? Yeah, it's, it just seems obvious to me that that is deadly dangerous. Yeah. And again, it undermines the authority as well as the sufficiency it does. of Scripture. It yeah. does. In fact, I was preaching in Brazil not long ago. There was a, a preacher there, and he said it this way. He said, uh, the best prophet today is a, de- a dead prophet. The best apostle today is a dead apostle. Mm-hmm. And so what he was attacking was the idea that these gifts are still normative and given to the church today. Mm-hmm. But Phil, you mentioned a moment ago about the, the historic theologians of church history and their positions. One of the troubling things today is that if you visit seminaries and you go to, you know, systematic theology classrooms, what you typically hear is you'll you'll hear professors that are lecturing from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. And so that book has been popularized. It sits massively, you know, used across the board within evangelical circles. And one of the things that he promotes and has popularized is this idea is that prophecy today, modern day prophecy, can be non-authoritative and fallible, as you mentioned a moment ago. In fact, I want to read just a portion of what he says in his book. He said the following. He said, I have argued extensively elsewhere that ordinary congregational prophecy in New Testament churches did not have the authority of Scripture. It was not spoken in words that were the very words of God, but rather in merely human words. And because it has this lesser authority— There is no reason to think that it will not continue in the church until Christ returns. It does not threaten or compete with Scripture in authority, but is subject to Scripture, as well as to the mature judgment of the congregation. How would you respond to that? I would say what he's actually describing there is not prophecy. It's intuition. We all have intuitive thoughts that uh, sometimes are uncannily right we've all we've all thought that where you know you imagine something or dream something and and either that very thing or something very similar came to pass and it's almost like did i prophesy there are a couple of problems with elevating that 
to the level of prophecy, number one, even unbelievers have those experiences, right. and they're just as common among unbelievers as they are Christians. That's not a spiritual gift. Right. Uh, and number two, it, it is often wrong, and so it's dangerous just to follow your intuition. Now, if I have a choice to make or a decision to make or, uh, or, or something like that, that where I have intuitively I'm thinking this is what I want to do, mm-hmm. I, I still am obligated under the rules of Christian wisdom mm-hmm. to— examine my choices in light of Scripture and say, is there one choice that's more biblical than the other? If all the factors are equal and there's no reason it would be sinful for me to do this thing as opposed to that thing, then I do follow my intuition. I think we all do. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with that. And the Uh, more immersed you are in Scripture, the more your intuitions will probably be consistent with Scripture. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that has something to do with how the subconscious functions, uh, things you've put into your mind that condition how you think, and so you you tend to get things right. And you know, I, I don't actually know how intuition works. I don't don't know that anyone could authoritatively say that, but it is a fact that even unbelievers right. have those experiences and those thoughts. Mm-hmm. So to elevate that to the level of a spiritual gift and say that you you really ought to listen to right. everybody's intuition right. as if it were a prophecy uh, again it opens the door yeah. to some real deadly dangers. Yeah, we're actually commanded to renew our minds according mm-hmm. to Scripture. Right. Right. So the written word matters. And I think that just to sort of address something you said earlier, Phil, the idea that there's modern-day prophecy that's non-authoritative and fallible, it opens the front door of the church to spiritual manipulation and abuse. Exactly. These bad actors, these wolves, can actually stand before congregations and say, God told me to tell right. you to do this, right. and it's not the word of God. Right. That's right. And and if you're conditioned to think of that as prophecy, a word from the Lord or mm-hmm. insight from the Lord, or however Wayne Grudem would want to characterize it, uh, you, you, you're going to feel some obligation to obey this voice. It's a fresher, in fact, charismatics even use that expression. This is fresh, a fresh word from God. Right. And as opposed to scripture, which is what, stale? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so so I, I, I always cringe when I hear that. I always remember back 30 years ago, I think I was uh, working with John MacArthur, editing his book, Charismatic Chaos, at the time, uh, the the best prophet ever, you know, supposedly had the best track record and all of that. He actually came to meet with us, and um, uh, to talk talk with John. It came to light about, and and I suspected him from the beginning. I thought something's not right with this guy. I think he was just doing what you know magicians call cold reading right, right. Yeah. and he could t- he, he uh, could be uncannily accurate about things he said about you know but everything he said about and to john macarthur he got wrong <laughs> so it wasn't a very convincing exercise but it came to light maybe a decade later that he was not only a hopeless alcoholic but he'd also uh, lived secretly as a as a homosexual for mm-hmm. a long time so the guy was a total phony mm-hmm. it came to light and yet every Every well-known cessationist, even some some conservative men from mm-hmm. good circles, had wrapped their arms around this guy and publicly endorsed him. Yeah. And uh, I look at that and think, you know, when something like that happens, why does it not ever seem to 
provoke the entire movement to some serious self-examination because it, these problems are rife. Yeah. I can't I can't think of a prophet or church leader who hasn't been tainted by mm-hmm. some kind of scandal or false prophecy. Yeah. I think I think there's an impact that takes place on on a personality that claims to speak for God not knowing anything about a, the word of God or, or or having a fear of the Lord when they say that. Right. Um, I, I've, I've been a part of entire services that someone had a quote-unquote fresh word from the Lord and never was the, the text of Scripture opened. Uh, scripture was, there was such a low view of Scripture that this fresh word from the Lord was the manner in which the entire 45-minute, hour-long or more service yeah. actually mm-hmm. unfolded. And, and that was that was all that was done. It was, it was, that was talked about. They were talked about. And then after everybody left to go, to go grab a bite to eat, uh, they were talking about, did you, get, did you hear that fresh word? And Yeah, you know, that's not only common. That is, uh, I think, probably the epitome of what I think is the worst uh, of all the charismatic errors. And it harks back to something I said earlier where uh, the, there's no truth in the content. It's all about emotional in- manipulation. Right. And you said it goes on sometimes for 45 minutes. I actually posted maybe 10 years ago yeah, I saw that. a video yep. of Kenneth Hagin yep. where he gets in the pulpit and the first thing he does is close the Bible, yes. set it aside. Yes. And he says he had a great sermon prepared, but instead... He, he lapses into this silence where he says nothing, but he walks around the the audience yeah. for f- a full 45 minutes just laughing and mm-hmm. provoking other people to laugh. And this is supposed to be a manifestation of spiritual power. Right. And it's, it's just so uh, devoid of any content or anything edifying. And I put it online just, just to say this, this is the result of yeah. that kind of thinking. Yeah. Uh, and yet, to this day, that is the most watched and commented on video on my YouTube page. Yeah. And every morning when I wake up, there's a new comment from someone. And I would guess probably three-quarters of the people who comment on it say, well, you just don't understand. This is a true movement of the Holy yep. Spirit. And yep. they, they refuse to, to look at that and say, yeah, there's something wrong that's happening yeah. here. I, I, was, I was there in Tulsa when those things were happening right. uh, as they were unfolding and, and would hear the feedback from those. And there was nothing substantive. Right. Uh, it was all mystical. Uh, it, was, it was all you know, surface. It had nothing to do with, with Scripture or exalting God uh, or, or, a, or proclamation of the gospel. None of those things were, were a part of it. The thing that, that's concerning though, Phil, is I think about this, most in our circles would laugh at that or would at least look at that and go, that's that's ridiculous. But what we're finding is even in, in some conservative, quote unquote conservative circles, uh, you've got you know uh, women who are doing their their Bible study saying they've heard a fresh word from the Lord. Uh, you've got I, you know these these conservative you know either Southern Baptists or or you know even Reformed folks who are who are beginning to leverage the language right. uh, that you're hearing in, in those same charismatic circles that you know five years ago three years ago we would we would kind of look at and go that's ridiculous. But we're seeing more and more of that. What, what, how do you speak to that? How should we be speaking to that? Yeah, it's not a new problem either, uh, Virgil. I think you could go back uh, if you read enough older things. Uh, there've always been uh, there's always been a tendency for uh, believers to treat their own intuition mm. as uh, you know the leading of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and uh, and maybe put too much weight on how I feel about something yeah. or what I think about. It. Uh, one of my favorite historical characters is Cotton Mather. Mm. 
And he went through an era where he experimented with this. George Whitfield did as well. Mm -hmm. These two guys who I greatly respect, who both flirted with this notion that God was giving them um, not not verbal messages, but direction in their heads that they they regarded for a time as authoritative. And both of them kind of got in trouble doing it. In Cotton Mather's case, uh, he called it a particular faith. He says, I have a particular faith that God is going to answer this prayer. And he had a wayward son who had run away to sea, and he prayed for his son and and felt that God had given him a particular faith, a reassurance that his son would be fine, he would be saved, he would come home like the prodigal, and that son died in a shipwreck Mm -hmm. before he came back. Uh, George Whitfield uh, prophesied that his his wife was expecting a child. He said, it's going to be a boy, we're going to name him John. He'll be the greatest preacher since John the Baptist. And so he had a boy, named him John, and the child died in infancy. Mm. And, and both of those men were forced by circumstances to reevaluate how they thought mm-hmm. about, you know, whether God is speaking to me through my intuition or mm-hmm. not. Yeah. And, uh, and I, both of them, I think, came to the right conclusion. But uh, it's been, I mean, who of us hasn't experimented with that, right? Oh, yeah. I used to think that God would send a, a, a lightning bolt to me to tell me who to marry, and instead— <laughs> He just let me fall in love with my wife. Yeah, that's a blessing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I did the same kind of thing. Uh, I'll share this brief story. I, I remember trying to figure out. I was I was kind of on the, on the edge of not believing this movement and thinking this is a false movement. And at the time, there was this there was this word from the Lord that you could pray a prayer, uh, never say anything to anyone, and and receive what you had prayed for. Uh, as a result of that, I had some I had some some shoes that I was wearing. Uh, and, and, and I'd worn them out, worn the soles of them out to the point where I was, I was beginning, to, the, the sock was beginning to peek through. My thought was, this is something that God could do. It's real simple. It's not some you know, dire sickness of any kind. I'm going to walk around in these shoes until God blesses me with some brand new shoes. And so every day as I got prepared for my day, I would, I would walk the area of my, of my city and I was praying, God, you're going you're gonna to bless me. I know and, you know, naming and proclaiming and uh, believing and receiving, right? So I was doing all of that for the course of about three months. And, and this, was, this was during the summertime where, in, you know, where we were in, in Oklahoma, you get, you get a whole lot of heat followed by a torrential rain right. uh, and then a whole lot more heat and humidity. Uh, so after about three or four rains, I thought, you know what, this is not working. <laughs> and I'm going to have to go ahead and, and drop this and go buy me some some brand new shoes. And uh, and it was kind of at that point that I thought, this this is for the birds. Uh, I've got I've got a and something as simple as that, right? Right. Uh, I've got to leave, I've got to leave this thing and figure out what God is really saying and doing. And, and of course, it would bring me right back to His Word. Exactly. And as a cessationist, I would say. Virgil, the Lord answered your prayer. Right. Mm. He gave you the means to buy those shoes. Right. He just didn't answer. He doesn't usually answer our prayers by miraculous means. Right. And that doesn't mean he's not working. I've often said the the answer to the charismatic error is the doctrine of divine providence. That's right. That God is at work in everything that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, if if you if you are healed from a disease because of a treatment the doctor gave you, it's still God who heals. Absolutely, right. yeah. So he just used that as his means. Yeah, and yeah. we're going to talk about that at the G three national conference. All right, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah we, we, we actually will deal with that issue right. on the sovereignty of God, which is such a good point. I, th- this way of thinking not only undermines the sufficiency of Scripture, but it really undermines the, prov- the providence and sovereignty of God. Yeah, that's right, he, because, yeah. because it conditions people to think that if God isn't doing spectacular miracles, right. then he's not at work at right. all. Yeah. And so you have to, in order to bolster your faith in God, you, you tend to invent miracles that aren't real miracles right. at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All the way back to circle back to the original question about the sufficiency of Scripture, I, I think oftentimes when we think about the charismatic movement, we we tend to think of the crazy bad actors, the Benny Hens, mm-hmm. the Creflo Dollars here in the Atlanta area, others. But you know, when we think about the influence of the charismatic movement, we really w- it would do us well to think about you know the the issues that are closer to the front porch of our own churches. Yep. Mm-hmm. And for instance, if you go to a lot of just typical evangelical churches, they are influenced by the charismatic movement on various levels. For instance, once I was preaching at a a church, they put me in their large library just to sort of sit there and read notes and wait until time for me to preach. So I started walking around. I mean, it was a really nice coffee shop, floor-to-ceiling books everywhere. So I was just, you know, checking out what they had on the shelves. I kid you not, as I was walking down the, the, the line of the bookshelf, there was Sarah Young, Jesus Calling, and then there's Heaven is for Real, and then there's Paul Washer, all within five yards of one another. And so it's like they give a budget to some well-meaning woman that's going to be the librarian and say, just go buy books, and she just gets on you know the internet and just starts buying books. Well, the reality is a lot of these issues are impacting local church members, and they're influencing those, those individuals. For instance, when we think about a prophet who has a message from God, like Isaiah was given a vision to see the enthroned Christ, Isaiah 6, Mm -hmm. and then he speaks a message from God with an authoritative posture, which is exactly the way that, that a prophet speaks and preaches and writes. But when we have a little boy that supposedly dies and goes to heaven and then comes back and tells this emotional story that heaven is for real, the Holy Spirit is there, talks about all these vivid colors and experiences and things that are already, you know, revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. You know, we need to think about the fact that, you know, you you have an evangelical church that would say, no, we don't believe that God gives prophets today, but they have that book on their shelves because that little boy is actually a prophet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, yeah. we, we would obviously say he's a false prophet, right? right? Right. But the reality is he's functioning in the way that a prophet would function. He's given a vision. He's given this, this experience. I mean, we have this whole new thing called heavenly tourism today mm-hmm. and a genre of books that are popularized within evangelicalism today. And really, it comes, it's flowing through the vein, if you will, of the charismatic movement. I think it's troubling. I think it's an assault on the sufficiency of God's word. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it, it's problematic in, in every way that you just explained. I think the, I think the reason for the popularity is we're, A, living in a, in a postmodern culture, uh, B, 
everyone is, we're, we're worshiping at the altar of emotion. Yeah. Uh, we're worshiping at the altar of feeling. Uh, that's become the, the benchmark for how, you know, for, for what's true, for what's right, for what's real. Mm-hmm. It's all based upon what I feel. So when you have a, an emotional narrative, an emotional story uh, that connects with people, they're, they're more likely to believe that it has something to do with God uh, rather than recognizing scriptures there all the, all the while to, to yeah, speak Yeah, but is to. the Bible boring? Right, right. For them, for them, yeah, absolutely. Do we need something like that? I mean, I mean, if you just read Luke sixteen, you know, the the end of that story that Jesus tells, mm-hmm. that, that we see in that whole scenario, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you have, you have, you know, the 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 clear statement that it doesn't even matter if someone is raised from the dead if they will not receive the prophets, right. then then they will not receive that message either. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, this is what really concerns me too. I, you know, we, we talk about the crazies, and a lot of people are caught up in that, and that's dangerous. But I really am often more concerned about the the ways in which this kind of thinking, like you were talking about, has crept into our otherwise theologically sound cessationist churches. And yet we talk as if God is still speaking. Uh, you talk about the emotionalism, Phil. That has invaded our worship, where we worship emotion, we worship experience. There, there's so many implications for how this way of thinking has has integrated itself into our churches. If we're, we're wanting to wrap up at this point, just kind of wanting to connect with with uh, with each of you in a couple of different ways as we wrap up our time together. Uh, wanted to first of all, just by way of reminder, uh, let you know, make you aware of our national conference, uh, the national conference September twenty uh, first through the twenty third uh, here in Atlanta, Georgia. You'll want to be a part of that. We'll be speaking about some of these some of these issues. We'll be mm-hmm. touching on uh, quite a bit as it. Pert- to not only God's sovereignty, but his providential hand in the life of the believer. Uh, we want you to be there, want you to be a part of that. Connect with us. Get on g3men.org. And we're about to do a price increase. The rate increases tomorrow. The rate increases tomorrow. So you'll definitely want to participate. Get online. Uh, register as soon as possible. And I have an important announcement to make as well. This is uh, something we've been excited about for some time. Uh, that really connects right with our conversation. But uh, some of you may have seen the announcements about the upcoming film called Cessationist. Uh, this is from the same uh, the same men who created Logic on Fire and Calvinist and and some really great resources for the church. Well, we are excited that we G three Ministries is partnering with that team in the release of this project and some supplementary project study guides going forward. Uh, so this will be a great tool and a resource for local churches to combat this kind of thinking that we've been talking yeah. about and really get us back to trusting in the sufficiency of God's word, sufficiency of what he has said, the sufficiency of his providential work in the world today, and uh, and, and, and reinforcing uh, this biblical doctrine that is so yeah. under attack today. I'm extremely excited that we're connecting with this, you know, this particular subject, with this particular topic, yep. uh, I'm excited that we're going to be partnering and uh, and, and really pushing forward uh, the, the the movie, the book, all of the things that are yep. associated with it. It's going to be an amazing thing for us to have as a tool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, G3 Ministries exists for the purpose of encouraging, educating, and equipping the local church with sound biblical theology. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll be sending more information to you about that, how you can get your hands on those resources mm-hmm. in the days to come. Absolutely. Well, Phil, we want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for having Glad me. Glad that you could be here. It's a joy to have you in our studio, connected with us. And uh, we're looking forward to all the things we've got in store for the rest of the day. we got a lot of stuff planned for you, brother. All right. Yeah, looking forward to it. Josh, uh, Scott, thanks for joining us. Yeah. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the G3 Podcast.